Yeah. <laughs> okay, now I just want to go sit down and hide. <laughs> Good morning. So wonderful to be with you, as you know. Uh, Sam and crew are in New Philadelphia, Ohio. They are having a memorial service for Mark Trotter. And so I am batting cleanup today, or maybe I'm a pinch hitter. It's probably a better way to say it. Pinch hitting for Sam himself. So continue praying for the Trotter family, and also be praying for First Baptist New Philly, Ohio, Mark Trotter pastored that church for 25 years, so I have a relationship with some really good men there, and uh, they are really feeling this loss and mourning, and this, this, is, this is very heavy for them, so be praying for FBC. I'm sorry? They can't hear well. I need to move this? All right, is that better? Okay, very good. Pastor Mata just gave me the thumbs up, so... Everything is all good now. If I get a thumbs up from him, we are really good to go. So yes, I, I feel like, so this been a few times by God's grace that I've been blessed to speak in different churches and whatnot, and so I know what it feels like to feel like a guest speaker. I feel that way here, because <laughs> I'm usually in the second service, so there's so many faces, and this is a very good thing, there's so many faces I don't recognize, so praise God. So yes, I'm Kenny, I am a member here at MVT, nice to meet you. I feel like I need to introduce myself, all right? We're going to be in Colossians chapter 3. If you haven't found yourself there, be making your way there. Father in heaven, I want to thank you so much for your mercies that are new today. Thank you, God, for the sufficiency of your marvelous grace. That is not just sufficient at salvation, but is sufficient for everything, all things, all the time. And God, we thank you for the gift of the Comforter who indwells us, the Holy Ghost. And we recognize that he is the ultimate teacher this morning, not me. And so, God, we look to you to speak to us through your Holy Word and through your Holy Spirit that you would speak very clearly as only you can. That God, what is taught and said today is to your glory, and that it brings about the type of change in the lives of your people that pleases you. Father, would you do this for your glory alone? Amen. So the first four verses of Colossians chapter 3 lay the foundation for the rest of the chapter. It is paramount that we get these first four verses. If I could say it this way, failure to get these first four verses means that everything else after it is compromised. In other words, you have no shot to embrace the rest of the chapter if you do not embrace these first four verses. Now, in Life Fellowship, we are walking through the book of Colossians, and if I were teaching in life today, this is exactly where we would be. And so we have a schedule that we need to keep, and so I said, well, Lord, I'm just going to teach what I would have taught in life today. So here you are. Welcome to Life Fellowship, right? Give you a little taste of that. All right. What we see in these first four verses, though, is the believer in Jesus Christ, 
the believer must seek those things which are above. And that is where their affection needs to also be set. The believer has to do the spiritual math on who they are now. They have to reconcile that they are dead and their life is hid with Christ in God, verse 3. And then in verse 4, they have to reconcile that it is Christ who is their life. In other words, the very person of the Lord Jesus Christ himself is who you are. It's who I am as believers in Jesus Christ. His life is, is who I am. That's my identity. Eric did a great job of, of setting this up for us in terms of identity. But because of those truths, we see in verses 5 through 9, we see there are some things that must be mortified, put to death. Now, I want to be very clear. There is a great difference between mortifying and managing. The Apostle Paul said, now because of who you are in Jesus Christ, there are some things in your flesh that are to be no more. They are to be put to death. They are to be mortified, not managed, right? So when we try and manage things, and we have pictures of this in Scripture where God says, I want this wiped out. I want this destroyed. I want this obliterated in your life. And then you see examples where people said, well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to manage that to the best of my ability. In other words, I'm going to make some space, some allowance for it, but not kill it. Paul says, no, no, no. Mortify these things. Why? Because these things are contrary to who we are in Jesus Christ now. They're inconsistent with his nature and his character. So they have no place in your life or mine. While mortifying and putting off these things is it's very correct, but that's only half of what's needed. That's only 50%. Because Paul's focus shifts from what we are to put off to what we must put on. And what we must put on is consistent with the person, character, and nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's our new identity. So here we are, verse 10. And I've put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. So as we've said, the new man is the Lord Jesus Christ who our life is hid in, who is our life. Again, everything that Paul says after verse 4, it's basically he's building on the foundation of those first four verses. They're paramount to the chapter. But in the companion epistle of Ephesians, we read that, Paul said that this new man is after God and is created in righteousness and true holiness, Ephesians 4.24. So this new man is a new creature in Christ who is renewed or created to be just like Christ. That is God's heart for every believer. Now, I'm a father, and I'm very thankful for that. What a great privilege. And 
my son has my name. I am Kenneth Preston Morgan, and so is he. But listen very carefully. My greatest desire for my son is not to be like me. If that's his goal, he will underachieve significantly. My greatest burden for my son and my daughter is that they would be like Christ. Christ-likeness. That's my heart. Now, this is where we begin to narrow our focus. Look at verse 11. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. This word where, it's an adverb, and it speaks to place or position. Our position is solidified at the end of verse 11. What is our position? But Christ is all and in all. That's our position. In other words, uh, Christ is not only our position, but Christ is our everything. He's our all in all. He is it. His, his presence, his person, his character, his nature is to be so overwhelming in our lives that there's not space for any other identity to be associated with us. If we are to be Christ-like, if we are to be a true Christ-like believer, then we have to get this first point, which is this. We must surrender our carnal identities. We must surrender our carnal or fleshly or worldly identities. This is letting go of those identities, listen, that once defined us in the flesh. They represented who we were. If Christ is all and in all, then our identity is not rooted in our ethnicity, Greek nor Jew. Our identity is, is, is not found in, in religion, circumcision or uncircumcision. It's not found in culture. Barbarian or Scythian, barbarian was anyone who was not Greek and Scythians were a wild nomadic people, were lower than the barbarians in the eyes of the Greeks. Class, bond nor free, and if we compare scripture with scripture, Galatians 3.28 tells us that not even gender, male nor female. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, none of those things represent who you are. They represent, listen, who you were. But they do not represent who you are. Uh, some believers are not Christ-like because, listen, they have not surrendered these carnal identities. They're still clinging to some of these things in their mind. This is how they view themselves. I'm a this, I'm a that. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, it's simple. You are Christ. 
You're Christ. That's it. When your identity is rooted in these things, these carnal things, guess what? That now shapes how you view and discern everything. So you view and you judge things as a white man, as a Jewish man, as a Latino woman, as an educated person, an uneducated person. But that's not who you are in Christ. That's a major problem because, listen, when that is the lens from which you look through, guess what that equates to? Well, let me tell you what it doesn't equate to. It doesn't equate to Christ-likeness. It equates to carnality. I grew up in an urban suburb of the city of Atlanta. I grew up in South Decatur. Atlanta, for those of you who do not know, Atlanta is a very black city. There are many African Americans there. Atlanta has a metropolitan population now that has eclipsed 6,000, or I'm sorry, 6 million people. Uh, What I can tell you is approximately 51% of those people are African American. That's how I grew up. From a worldly perspective, there are many, and I do many, I do mean many, there are many affluent, successful, African-American people who reside in the city of Atlanta. I grew up around them. It is not uncommon to have, I mean, upper-class neighborhoods that are predominantly black where occasionally there's a white homeowner in those areas. This is how I grew up. I have an uncle who made the front cover of a business magazine as an African-American successful business owner. He was interviewed by CBS. And something that was handed down to me as a child, I, I grew up with this, but as a child, what was, what was instilled in me at a very young age was black pride. There are many proud African-American people who reside in the city of Atlanta. They're very proud of of what they've accomplished. They're very proud of what they can accomplish. And the mindset is, is we, listen, I'm just being honest with you, okay? And uh, underneath some of that is the mindset that says we don't need anyone. Uh, We don't need anyone to give us permission to succeed. We'll do it ourselves. And that's code for, I don't need the white man to help me. I can do it myself. This is how I grew up. And black pride is, it was not, and it is not overtly bad because that was born out of oppression where there was a time where African Americans in this country, they were provoked to feel shame and despise who they were as African-Americans. I got it. Before, 
I became a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was larger than life to me. <laughs> he was. Anytime someone would come visit us in Atlanta, if they were new to the city, uh, one of the things I would, I would always do is I would take them to his museum, which is downtown Atlanta on Auburn Avenue. And I was so proud to show them, listen, here's this museum, and here's where he's buried, and here's, here's the Ebenezer Baptist Church, and uh, what an honor it was for me to actually sit in that church one day. I'm sitting in the Ebenezer Baptist Church, the history, and this is the home that he grew up in. Let me show you that. I was very proud of that. Listen, every year in my home, on Martin Luther King Day, the entire day was devoted to him in my home. You can cue up one of his speeches right now and stop it and say, okay, finish it. And I could. My mother would turn the TV on in the morning and there would be footage all day. And my mother would kind of carry a spirit of mourning. <laughs> she was alive in the South when that happened, when he was assassinated. To this day, I believe that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was one of the greatest orators the world's ever known. He spoke with power, conviction, and a gracious eloquence. Subconsciously to me, as a kid, he was like a god to me. As a matter of fact, in the average African-American home, it, it was not uncommon to walk into someone's home and there were two pictures on the wall. There was a picture of Jesus Christ, whatever they thought he looked like. <laughs> and you can probably finish this. There was a picture of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Very typical. But on June the 6th, 1994, around 10.15 p.m. in Raytown, Missouri, I recognized that I was a sinner that was in desperate need to be saved by the grace of God manifest to me through the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he did not just save me. Listen, he gave me a complete new identity. Please hear me. I am not ashamed of my ancestry in the flesh. Far from it nor am I indifferent to the historical struggle of my people. Far from it, I have tremendous respect for the struggle. However, because of what the Bible teaches, listen, I have surrendered my ethnicity and my culture. It is not first. It is not predominant. I don't view and judge everything as a black man. Everything is judged and viewed from this perspective. By God's grace, I'm a biblicist. What does the Bible say? And I do not care what anyone else says. 
Some have labeled me as an Uncle Tom or sellout for saying those things. And the reason they have done that is because they are not biblicist. So who they are in the flesh matters more than who they are in Christ. And the result of that is not Christ-likeness. Once again, it is carnality. That's my story. How about you? Have you surrendered these carnal identities? Or are you still hanging on to them? I promise you if you are, because I know it all too well, if you are holding on to these things, guess what you're doing? You are the person, and listen, everybody can see it. You are the person who is walking through life, and guess what? You've got a chip on your shoulder. You've got an ax to grind. Whether it's female rights or, or whether it's social issues, whatever it might be, this is not your authority about it. It's this. God says, I could care less. Everything that I care about, I've told you. The Apostle Paul most certainly surrendered those carnal things. Galatians 5, 2, Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Christ is become of no effect to you, unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. If we hold on to these carnal identities, listen, at some point, it's not a matter of if, but only when, at some point they will conflict with Scripture. Then what do you do? Because Paul became a biblicist, his perspective flipped on how he viewed these things. There was a point in his life before he met Christ that these things meant a great deal to him. But now he says, as a biblicist, that means nothing. He didn't view it from an ethnic, denominational, cultural, or gender perspective. He viewed it from a biblical perspective. If you've met Christ, but your perspective is still carnal, it's still rooted in the flesh, it is because... You've not surrendered these things. And these identities represent who we are to live like or how we're to live. And this is what he talks about in verse 12. And I got to watch the clock. <laughs> wow. Are you guys playing games? Did someone speed it up? Did you, did you add like 10 minutes just like that? My goodness. All right, I'm already sweating. 
these lights, I tell you. Yeah, man. All right, verse 12. That's all right. Preaching's a work. I'm getting my, car, my cardio in today or something like that. Sam doesn't sweat like me, does he? Actually, Sam, he stays pretty, right? But I, I start doing that, and then, then you start, right? Okay, whew, I got to hustle. All right, you guys hanging in there? You good? All right, let's go. Verse 12, put on, therefore, because what we just talked about, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. Verse 12, put on therefore, because of who you are now, because Christ is all and in all, put on therefore your new identity as the elect of God. We understand from 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2 teaches us that election is according to foreknowledge. In other words, it is what God knows in advance. So God knows in advance, not chooses, who will come to faith in Christ. If you are in Christ, I can promise you that God knew that you would be in Christ before you knew. That's foreknowledge. But what we're getting at here is this, is our, listen, this is so critical. This is where Paul is getting so practical now in the, in the book. But where he's going now is our walk must be consistent with our identity. That's, that's it. Who you are needs to match how you walk, and how you walk needs to match who you are. So if we are to be Christ-like, we must also sanctify our spiritual responsibilities. And he begins to outline them very simply for us. You can't miss this. Anyone could stand up right now and outline these. The, the Word of God just naturally outlines them. But these responsibilities are so significant that they must be set apart. They must be sanctified. Like you can't afford to dismiss these. And neither can I. And they are consistent with the person and character of Christ. In other words, if you want to know what Christ looks like practically... You're going to get it right here, Amen. which, by the way, where we're going is this is what we must look like. And when you begin to look at these, you realize that they have nothing to do with being Greek or Jew. They're not carnal. They have nothing to do with gender, class, culture, none of that. They have everything to do with Christ. The first responsibility is this, be merciful. Be merciful. Put on bowels of mercies. Notice it's plural. He didn't say put on bowels of mercy, but bowels of mercies. This is sympathy that runs deep within us. Listen, a merciful person identifies with the hurts, 
losses and weaknesses of others. They identify with that. They weep with those who weep. Please hear this. Because again, I know our church, and I thank God for our church, and our, our church is one of our core ministry principles here is that we're always training leaders. So leadership development is a very big deal to us, as it should be. It's biblical. However, you are unfit for ministry leadership if you do not have the capacity in your heart for this. If you don't know how to sit with people, if you don't know how to comfort people, if you can't identify with people when they're hurting, when they're down, or listen, even when, they're, when they fall, you're not fit for ministry leadership. We'll pass on that. I treasure LFBI, and I treasure the strong teaching ministry in this place, however, we must all guard against becoming so academic that we lose or forsake the ability to weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn. We know that Jesus was both God and man, but His humanity was on vivid display. When he identified with the death of Lazarus, John eleven thirty five, 35, Jesus wept. This is God in the flesh. He wept. Well, I'm a man. I, 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 don't, I don't identify with all that sentimental stuff. Okay, who are you in Christ? Is it about your gender again? It has nothing to do with your gender. <laughs> It has to do with, are you becoming more like Christ or not? If you're becoming more like Christ, then guess what? You're not going to possess this cold disposition and this hardened, well, you'll be fine, I'll pray for you. You know, one of the things I've learned, leaders, if I can just talk to you for a minute, you know, one of the things I've learned is, Listen, people thank God for how God uses us to teach, and that's great, but here's what they treasure as much. is when the lights go out in their life, and they're really hurting, and you're there. And you're not lecturing them and giving them a sermon, but you're there to comfort them and pray for them and encourage them. That's putting on bowels of mercies. Or when they fall, not if, when they fall, you don't rain down. This is one of the things that Paul says earlier. Uh, one of the things that we're to put off is wrath. Some of us can get to the place where we're wrathful. This is interesting because we're going to start a relationship series in Life Fellowship next Sunday, and we're going to be talking about, about marriage and parenting and employer-employee relationships, but if I can just talk to the spouses for just a moment, you ought to be doing some serious reflection right now. 
Are you a merciful spouse? Do you put on bowels of mercy? If you don't put on bowels of mercy in marriage, I can tell you how your marriage is going. Not good. Here's a second responsibility. Be kind. Put on kindness. When we hear this word kind, I think we have this very elementary, maybe kindergarten teacher perspective of a person, right? Someone who brings out warm cookies and milk and they smile and wear a nice little sweater. Although it would be great if it was a sweater vest, but, you know, <laughs> just saying. I didn't wear a vest today on purpose because I don't want to hear any noise. <laughs> but this word kindness is much richer and much more mature than that. It means usefulness. It's translated as goodness or good five times in our New Testament. So listen, a kind believer will be someone who serves others. They're, they're servants. That's who they are. Ephesians 2, 7, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. You know what this also tells us about a kind person? Listen, a kind person will also be an unselfish person. Now we're starting to get a real good picture of Christ, aren't we? Now we're starting to get a real good picture of the Christ-like believer, aren't we? Now we're starting to get a picture of a Christ-like marriage. Are we merciful? Are we kind? A kind person is unselfish because they are only preoccupied with serving others. This is where I am tempted to take a detour, but I'm going to keep going because I am watching the clock. Number three, be humble. Put on humbleness of mind. This deals primarily with how you think of yourself or how you view yourself. Notice it says, not just put on humility, but put on humbleness of mind. Listen, humility is a mindset. It's a mindset. And God hates a proud look. We know this from Proverbs chapter 6. You know what a proud look is? A proud look is having an elevated view of yourself. You're very impressed with what you think. You're very impressed with, with, with what you believe to be right and how you go about things. And, and that's a proud look. God hates it. Arrogance comes with that. Uh, those who have this exalted view of themselves, they foolishly compare themselves to others and every time they come out on top. I am just so much smarter and advanced than everybody around me. All these people are just idiots. If only they were as smart as I, if only they knew what I knew, if only they had my perspective and this, that, and the other, it's that's not humble. That's not humbleness of mind. 
I will tell you, experience has taught me that the institution of marriage can be a very arrogant place for some. I'm right all the time. You know, this marriage would be so much better if you would just get on my page. If you would just figure out that, <laughs> let me tell you, boy, if, if, I can, if I can pull the curtain back for just a moment and, 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 and throw myself under the bus, but there was a time in my marriage where the Lord had to show me something, and I'm going to tell you, it cut deep. Lori and I are different, praise the Lord. <laughs> But one of the things that God revealed to me was, son, you really believe in your heart that you are intellectually superior to her. Ouch. My wife is meek and quiet. She's not outspoken. She's not opinionated. And so in my pride, I misinterpreted that as, well, she doesn't have a clue. I've got this all figured out. All she needs to do is just listen to me and follow my lead. And there were a few times the Lord allowed me to get to the end of some decisions I had made that were absolutely not in the best interest of her or our family. And God says, now let's have a talk. You ready to get rid of that attitude, that arrogance, and put on humbleness of mind? Sorry. And that led to, all right, Lori, here we are. I get it. I understand that I have to make this decision, but I really want to hear what you think. <laughs> I'm listening. Philippians 2.8, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, with the cross. A humble believer will be someone who dies to self. They will not be a part, and every church has this crowd. They will not be a part of a difficult crowd in the church who is fighting for their rights or fighting to be right. They want nothing to do with that group. They do not think too highly of themselves or too lowly of themselves. They simply do not think of themselves. Here's our fourth responsibility. Be meek. Put on meekness. Is this not such a wonderful, lovely, incredible masterpiece of the Lord Jesus Christ? Is he not these things? Yes. Listen, as men, we've done the math on the fact that we're not beautiful in the flesh. We're cool with that. But ladies, if I could just speak into your heart for just a moment, I understand you are bombarded every day through media with what beauty is. What I'm telling you is, this is a beautiful woman right here. This is a beautiful woman. A woman who's merciful, a woman who's kind, a woman who's humble, a woman who's meek. She's hot. <laughs> and I thank God because that's the woman God blessed me with. She's amazing, merciful, kind, humble.
humble, meek. Meekness is the twin trait of humility. In other words, where you find one, you find the other. They're inseparable. This is someone who is gentle in their dealings with others. They are not overbearing in their approach. They are not combative in disagreement. They are not retaliatory when wronged. They are not rebellious towards spiritual authority. They are not outspoken or opinionated at all. They study to be quiet. They're very Christ-like. Matthew eleven twenty nine, uh, Take, Jesus said, my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. We know that yoke points to being in relationship with someone. If you want to be, listen, <laughs> if you want to be the type of believer that people absolutely love to be around, I mean, they can't get enough of being around you. They will go out of their way to spend time with you, and they are always saddened when that time comes to a close. If you want to be that type of believer, listen, if you want to be that type of spouse where your husband or your wife can't wait to come home, put on some meekness. Put on some meekness. Our pastor's that way. Can I, can I just, again, I'm, I'm going to just keep letting you in today. Is that all right? <laughs> I'm going to tell on myself, Sam's probably going to hear this. Here we go. <laughs> Sometimes, on occasion, I will find a reason to go into Sam's office in the afternoon. You know why? Because I just love being around him. Because he's these things. He's meek. He's humble. When you're, when you're with Sam, you always walk away and I'm like, man, like, I'm sad it's over. Be that person. Put on some meekness. Responsibility five, be enduring. Put on long-suffering. This is usually translated as patience in modern Bibles, but I do believe we weaken the meaning in that because the meaning of long-suffering is seen in the very word itself. It means to suffer long. Yeah, that includes patience, but so much more. All of these traits deal with how we are to relate to others. So long-suffering has to do with enduring hurt from others. I hate to break this to you, but if you have not realized this yet, I'm, I'm going to crash your naive party. You are going to get hurt in life and in ministry. And sometimes it's going to be intentional. Philippians 3.10, Paul said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. 
You have to be able to endure that and keep moving forward in Christ. You are going to get hurt. Your spouse is going to disappoint you. Your spouse is going to let you down. Welcome to life. Responsibility number six, be forbearing. Put on forbearing one another. This is to put up with. Ministry is not always a neat and clean experience. At times, I will tell you, it is downright nasty, if not vicious at times. And whenever we say things like that, we tend to automatically think of that person who I just described. The problem is we never land with that person being us. As wonderful as you all are, and you only have the best intentions, I can promise you, you can be difficult. At times, you are difficult to live with. At times, you are difficult to work with. At times, you're difficult to walk with. Just ask my wife. She will tell you that, yes, I love my husband, but if she were to be completely honest, there are some days. Here's what my wife does. Ladies, let me help you out. I'm, I'm, I'm looking out for you here now. You know what I figured out what Lori does? She tells on me. When I'm being difficult, you know what she does? She goes to the Lord. And what seems out of nowhere here I am, Lori, oh man, I'm so sorry. I, you know what, I, I didn't handle that right. Please, my tone was not gracious and edifying. I, I'm so sorry. Would you, will you please forgive me? She didn't raise a voice at me. She didn't get in my face. She didn't challenge me. She just, I'm sure, because I know her. I'm sure during her quiet time, she just said, Lord, that hurt. Lord, he hurt me. Lord, help me to watch my attitude. Help me to watch my, my tone. And then here it is. The Holy Spirit says, heard you loud and clear. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. That's how that works, ladies. I was trained years ago, expect to get hurt. Humbly, I have revised that to say, be prepared for people to come short of the glory of God. Be prepared for people to come short of the glory of God. Now, would you notice very carefully what I did not say? I did not say, be prepared for people to come short of your expectations. Do you see the difference? See, when it's about your expectations and not the glory of God, guess what it's not about with you? The glory of God. See, we can get so preoccupied and so wrapped up with our expectations that guess what we're nothing about? I could care less about the glory of God. I could care less about what God thinks or what pleases God. No, no, no. All I care about right now is he or she did not do this. In other words, this is all about me. Romans 3, 
24 and 25, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. Can you imagine, I don't think we really want to, but to make the point, can you imagine what God put up with before the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ? The forbearance of God was manifest through the grace of God at Calvary through the person of Jesus Christ. And can you imagine what he puts up with even with those who are now in Christ. Number seven, be forgiving. Put on forgiving one another. He says, and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. This reinforces we're going to get hurt. It's coming. But we don't hold grudges, and we don't look to get even. Even as Christ forgave us, we forgive others. This means that we do not reserve the right to hold things against people. We must understand that unforgiveness is a very self-righteous position. Did you know that? Unforgiveness is a very unrighteous or self-righteous position. It is self-righteous because it says, we were somehow worthy of God's forgiveness, but you aren't. Oh, let me get this right. So you're, you're so great and mighty and so special that whatever sins you've committed in your life, well, yeah, God absolutely had to forgive me, but what you did to me was so despicable and so awful, I was like, wow. How is that not self-righteous? It's very self-righteous. Sam often says, and the Lord will use Sam at various times to say this, and anytime Sam has said it, I don't think Sam realizes that I needed to hear it, and that's okay. I just know it's from the Lord. But Sam says enough that we do not get to throw people away. I'm going to tell you, before I became a believer in Jesus Christ, if you crossed me, no problem. We're done. I don't know you. You don't exist. We're finished. You go over here. I'm over here. I'm good. That may have been my approach in the flesh before Christ, but now that Christ is all and in all, and he is my identity, the Holy Spirit is not okay with that. Finally, be charitable, verse 14, and above all these things put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. Charity is the height of spiritual maturity. Charity is the height of spiritual maturity. Notice the height of spiritual maturity is not how much you know about the Bible. 
That's not the height of spiritual maturity. Listen, somewhere along the way in churches like ours, that place a very high premium on the Word of God in terms of studying it, knowing it, preaching and teaching it. Again, I'm all for all that we do here. Everything from COD to D1 to D2 to LFBI to main service, Sunday fellowships, Bible studies, all of it. Praise the Lord. But somewhere along the way, in churches that deeply hold to a faith-based view of the Scriptures, somewhere along the way, we have misinterpreted Scripture where somehow we have permission to be complete jerks to people who do not agree with us. We get to despise them and call them names, and subconsciously we view them as God's stepchildren. God doesn't love them as much as he loves us because they don't hold our position on the Bible. They don't rightly divide God's word exactly how we do. They're idiots. They don't have a clue. Uh, What's the verse on that? What, what, What verse tells us that we can be uncharitable and hateful and nasty and mean to the point where the person says, you know what, even if you are right, if that's how you're right, I'll hold on to my position because I absolutely do not want to be like you. That's not a charitable heart attitude. Charity is the highest expression of love because it is sacrificial and giving. Note, it is the bond of perfectness. A bond is something that binds and holds things together. It is God's love for us and our love for one another that holds, that binds us. It holds everything together. But if we don't put on charity, that's when things begin to fall apart. That's when we begin to get selfish. That's when we begin to fight for our rights and fight to be right. It's, I'm almost done. I'll say this. One of the things that God has taught me in marriage, and this is applicable to all relationships, but it is always more important for Lori and I to be right than it is for me to be right. I have to be right with her. We have to be right. I have to be right with Sam. And sometimes that means that we got to work through some things, everybody. That means we do have to have some hard conversations. I'm not saying we avoid those things. But what I'm saying is, is our goal must be, listen, at the end of the day, when the dust clears on this, we're going to be right. What did the Lord say? In John 13, 34 and 35, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have loved one to another. We got to put on charity. Now, in Life Fellowship, we're, we're going to actually finish 
this section, verses 15 through 17. I'm actually going to do it this week, and, and so that I'm really speaking to the Life Fellowship crowd, so because we, we've got to start our relationship series next week. But as far as you're concerned, I mean, this is where it stops for you this morning. Uh, so I would just absolutely, I know for a fact that you can't sit through a message like this, not because I taught it, but because God's word was open. I'm certain the Holy Spirit said something to you uh, because this hits all of us right where we are and, and challenges us. I know it challenged me. So whatever business you need to do with the Lord right now, I would just implore you not to put that off, to really position yourself, steal yourself, and respond in a way that pleases the Lord. The worship team is going to come forward. I'm going to pray, and this is your time to respond to the Lord. Father, I want to thank you so much for your word, and God, I do apologize. Look, I went a little longer than I probably should have. But God, I do know that your word went forth, and I pray that it would accomplish what pleases you. In Jesus' name, amen.